0: Blade Runner, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Tron, Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, John Carpenter's The Thing, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and what do all these movies have in common? Well, you know, they all came out in 1982, and for the past four decades, we've been watching these movies over and over again, but as we are about to discover, watching them was only the beginning. My name is Scott Mance, and I'm a film critic or as I like to call it a film enthusiast, I'm a fan and I am so excited to announce the start of a campaign so we can start filming a documentary called 1982 Greatest Geek Gear Ever. We're going to be bringing you an in-depth, fascinating, and totally gonzo look at the Greatest Geek Year Ever. 1982 we're going to be traveling the globe interviewing the stars the filmmakers and the super fans So support us and help us by going to our indiegogo campaign and as an incentive i hope you'll check out some of the great backers rewards so you can help us get to the finish line and we can all party like it's 1982.
1: if you're a fan of inglorious Trexperts, but Just don't want to hear all that Star Trek all the time. Uh, Listen to us on The 430 Movie. It's another podcast uh, available on Electric Now.
0: If you're a fan of The 430 Movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman,
1: and this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the inglorious Trek-sports.
2: And today, Darren, because you love the Star Trek Three Notes episode so very much, all you guys out there. Oh, but James Horner's school stealing the Enterprise. It's all so great. Why do you keep begging on Star Trek Three? We're back to talk about something we can all agree about. <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong with Star Trek Insurrection?
3: It is human nature to wonder what it would be like to never grow old to experience utter peace and harmony. And it is also human nature, for some of us, to want what we do not have.
2: Alert! Area 12. He's trying to remove the headpiece.
3: Do not delay the countdown. And for others, to stand in their way.
4: outright theft of a world
3: they were never meant to be immortal who the hell are we to determine the next course of evolution for this people
4: radiation coming from the planet's rings continuously regenerates our genetic structure
3: (laughs) we're only moving 600 people we'll be able to help billions this is the moment we've planned for so many years how many people does it take before it becomes wrong? people does it take I'm
4: we wouldn't be tempted by the promise of perpetual youth
3: there are hard choices to be made send your ships don't let go of this moment looks like you're planning on doing some hunting return to your quarters that's an order no uniform no orders the environmental anomalies may have stimulated certain rebellious instincts which could affect everyone's judgment except mine of course
4: okay data what do you think we should do
3: Saddle up Lock and load On December 11th Move these people out Stand in defiance yes. Definitely feeling aggressive tendencies, sir Hold your ground If a court-martial is the only way to tell what is happening here I welcome it, Adam Join the rebellion
1: Blow out the ramp, scoop. Stand by, full thrusters ah!
3: Star Trek insurrection
2: otherwise known as Star Trek regeneration which they then dropped that title then it was gonna be called Star Trek Revolution revolution Ooh. number nine maybe I don't know then it was then they were gonna call it Star Trek high Treason well you could say it was Pat against the fans uh, oh. Star Trek act of I don't know I can't read my act. <laughs> Act of something, and then Star Trek Rebellion. But wow. they didn't even need a focus group to tell them that they ultimately were ultimately going to call it Star Trek Insurrection. Okay, guys, we got a great show today because you know who we have with us? You know who's back? Who's back? Uh, not only is Honorary expert and Dota Dragon's Blood showrunner Ashley Miller back on the line via automated telephone, telephonic device. Uh he, he calling us from an undisclosed location. Um uh, Edward Miller is back.
5: Hey guys, uh it's great to be here. I cannot wait to talk about Star Trek for unlawful carnal knowledge. There you go. <laughs>
2: and it's a real treat because one of our favorite guests is back. And if somebody knows something about keeping franchises going and, and making them better, well, it's this man, it's the president of 20th. So I always say, say Fox, but I, I got to drop that. 20th Century Films, Steve Aspel, Steve's back. Hello, Steve.
6: Guys, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me back.
2: Well, it, what, what could be better than talking about Star Trek Insurrection?
6: Well, I just I just have to say I'm thankful to you for inviting me back, considering I continue to fail to have anything to do with Star Trek officially. So I live <laughs> near the Paramount lot. That's about as close as I get. So...
2: Well, uh, unless 20th century, unless Disney's bought the rights to Star Trek and we don't know anything about it. You don't See, have that much talk to do about Star it Trek. Now. Okay. D- I- <laughs> okay. So, so look, here's the thing. I was watching Insurrection today to prepare. I don't often prepare for these podcasts, but it'd been many, many years since I saw it. And, and this is indicative of the problem with the movie. I'm watching it. And, you know, people listen to this podcast know I have a, a son who's... Uh, 12 years old, who's into a lot of the same genre stuff that we are. And uh, he's seen all the Star Trek movies up until um, Star Trek First Contact. He knows the good ones. He knows the bad ones. Um, And he walks in, says, what you watching? I said, I'm watching Star Trek Insurrection. So he sits down for about three minutes and he's like, this is terrible. What is it? Why are they singing Gilbert and Sullivan? Okay, maybe he didn't say Gilbert and Sullivan. He's like, this is I can't watch this. <laughs> and he walked away. That was the extent of his interest in Star Trek Insurrection.
1: If only he were around back then, so that they could have had
2: a warning of some kind, not okay, to engage. Look, you know what? Before before we bag on this too much, I, I gotta <laughs> I gotta make an admission. I All gotta right. make an embarrassing admission. When the movie first came out, I actually said nice things about it. You know, I kind of liked it. A lot of it had to do. And I have to tell you, this happens with critics, as I'm sure Steve and Ashley will tell you. I really liked Mike Pillar. He was a really good guy. And he was getting a lot of abuse. And I was I really tried hard to look at the stuff that was good about the, And I, I and, and I I said some things that were very nice. And in fact, we're going to talk about Mike Piller's book today, uh, which was uh, killed by pocketbooks. Uh, when he tried to publish it, because it was very candid about everything that went wrong about the movie. Um, And uh, in it, uh, the favorite thing, my favorite thing I've ever read about myself is in that book. Do you guys, did you make it to the end of the book? Do you know what he called me? The Antichrist. They called me the Antichrist of Star Trek. I thought it was a
6: different Mark Altman. Actually. I said, what a coincidence.
5: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow.
2: I I just I'm tickled about that. Well, that I mean, means I've, Sam
5: Neill is going to play you in the movie, so it's fine.
2: <laughs> I I've mellowed yeah. over the years, but I I you know I, M- Mike Pillar Mike Pillar was a very look for for those who don't know Mike ran Star Trek uh, Next Generation from the third season through the, uh, the, the seventh season, he then, uh, created with Rick Berman, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. He was, a, he, and he discovered a lot of great writers, gave a lot of great writers their, their opportunity, Ron Moore, um, Renee Echevarria, um, Brandon Braga. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, but this was a guy, um, he was kind of like the not Jewish Woody Allen. He, he kind of was, was like, uh, <laughs> he, he, I mean, he really—he was so neurotic, uh, and and I say that with love. But I I never forget. You know, I I remember in Cine Fantastic, I, I gave a horrible review to the second season of Voyager, and he called me, and it was like, I, I think you got this so wrong, Mark, and 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 it's like it was so great, and I just can't believe you didn't like it, and and I give him so much credit because uh, other producers on on other Star Trek shows you know, sort of, uh, I was excommunicado after I would say something negative. But Michael was always willing to talk and to engage. And he always, in interviews, was so candid. He always said too much. I mean, his whole book, you guys read it. He yeah. says too much, doesn't he? Yeah. He sure does. Wait. Well, the I mean, book- Go ahead. No, no, He just pours his heart out and his soul, and he's so hard on himself. And I want to say, Michael, and defend him, but I can't because it's justified in this case. Right.
6: The book is an interesting piece. I mean, it was, it was public. I mean, I guess, as you said, not really published, but but it was written um, not contemporaneously with the movie, but not too long after. He passed away in, I think, 2005, unfortunately. And I, I didn't know him, but I in getting to know Ron and, and some of those other guys who talked, you know, glowingly of him, and he clearly had such an impact on the quality of Next Generation just as it was taking off. Um, but reading the book, I read it a while ago and then um, revisited it when you we started talking about this, along with revisiting the movie. And it's a really interesting piece because it's not, you know, it's not Devil's candy. I mean, it's a pretty mild uh, 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 pr- uh, sort of critique both of himself and the studio. and it's more of his own account of the of the process. Like, I mean, just as a, as a kind of writer, going through his own journey of, of first going from television into film, you know, writing a film, which is in one hand, very different, but also kind of, um, you know, Star Trek gave him the opportunity to do that, but also potentially limited him in terms of what that, that journey might be. I mean, if you guys know, as, as television writers, I mean, doing both really going from success in that one area to, to something like features is a totally different thing, but the book also made me, think about the movies themselves, uh, all the next generation movies in a way through a different lens. And I think it, the, the, it it's both a window into, um, as I said, his life and his sort of journey writing it. It's a window into kind of studios and IP in the sort of late nineties before X-Men, before the world we are in now, candidly. And then it's a, it's a take on, what Star Trek was in the nineties and why those films in a way, I think, and I don't mean this to be controversial, never quite had a chance for a variety of kind of institutional reasons, particularly when you compare the films with the ones that we grew up with, with the original cast, which I never quite understood because I love next generation so much. It was so formative for me at a certain point. And I couldn't, for a long time, I couldn't quite figure it out you know, that they don't work. I mean, for a variety of reasons, they don't even, even your precious first contact, like doesn't quite, I mean, it's good, but I think they had certain challenges, um, about the, the, of, of just where it was and when it was and, and what was expected of it.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, look at the time, I remember we were all, you know, we weren't all that enamored with first contact. It's grown on me over the years because there were a lot of plot holes and a lot of uh, leaps of logic, um, you know, and a lot of people were comparing it favorably to Con. It was kind of like, yeah, first contact's okay, but it's no Con. Um, I
1: mean, it has I Con know, to... in the in the title,
2: first Con. <laughs> but I want to I want to talk to you about where Star Trek was in sort of lo- uh, nurturing a franchise and how important that is. But I, I, before we do that, I just want to close off this Michael Pillar thing uh, it, it, for for those of you, like I said, he he's my my favorite Star Trek guy. Uh, he, he was very Jewish in every way, but uh, he he uh, he was not. He was definitely not. But this is from his book. This is how he first got involved with Next Generation. And he writes and I'm not doing the voice because I can't do Michael's voice. Um, as I was writing that first episode, uh, I was going to say Wagner, but Wagner, Michael Wagner and Roddenberry <laughs> were not getting along. And by the time my script was turned in, Michael had decided to resign. I got a call from Rick Berman. We love your script, he said. You obviously know the show. Would you like to take over the writing staff? To this day, I don't believe there's anything particularly special about that script, except for one scene that opened the door for me into Star Trek. In the story, co-written by Wagner, a scientist has built his entire life around a stellar event that only occurs once every 200 years. And now, due to a mysterious problem with the ship, it seems he's going to miss it. He expresses his bitter frustration to the youngest member of our crew, 16 year old wesley crusher now he then proceeds to include that dialogue exchange from evolution uh where uh Stubbs, played by ken jenkins is having a conversation with wesley about baseball now michael piller was obsessed by baseball and i think much to his, for, very fortuitously for him rick berman was yeah. also obsessed where by baseball. get that from the book and and that i think um endeared michael immediately to rick and Rick was also desperate at the time because Michael Wagner had, for all intents and purposes, had a nervous breakdown, uh, you know, <laughs> a couple of, you know, into the, at the very beginning of the third season. And it was already a show in trouble after the first two seasons and Michael uh, Hurley had just left. So I think pillar was looking pretty good to him right there. And uh, it, it worked out for the best um, pillar says, it turns out Rick Berman shared my love for baseball and that speech hit him right between the eyes. And so a partnership was formed. Cut forward to uh, Generations. Uh, Berman asks Michael Pillar to write Generations, but it's part of a script derby. They're going to develop two scripts: right. one by Maurice Hurley, the other uh, presumably by Pillar. Pillar turns it down. He wasn't going to go into a script derby, so instead, Berman offers it to Berman uh, to uh, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga. We know what happened there. Uh, after that film, they do First Contact. Uh, they are offered the third film, which would become Insurrection. Right. Brannon is thinking about it. Ron Moore decides no. He, he's on Deep Space Nine. He wants to go out on a high. He knows what happens if you, you get up to bat too many times. Your batting average goes down if you keep swinging and missing. So Brannon is going to be showrunner of Voyager. He's more inclined to take it. But eventually, since Ron is passing, he decides to pass. So now Berman doesn't have a screenwriter for insurrection or what will become insurrection. He goes back to Michael Pillar. Is that the first mistake, Steve? He goes back to the guy who's a TV writer. He's never done features, and his strength on Star Trek The Next Generation was always character, never spectacle. And if we've learned anything about Star Trek, spectacle is essential to the success of these movies. The battle in the Mutara Nebula, um, V'ger, the stealing of the Enterprise, uh, Star Trek four is different because you know, it's the whales, but even that has earth in peril. Right.
6: I think, I, I don't know if I would call it a mistake necessarily as much as it was again. And I think the, where, what the expectations were from everybody. I mean, again, cause I'm not sure when you think about how generations came to be, and yes, there were certainly big stakes in that, in terms of Soren's plan and, 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 you know, the nebula and everything or the, the rift or whatever it's called in blanking that the run. In, what's that? The, the nexus, ribbon, the, ribbon the, nexus? the nexus, the nexus. That's what it was. Yes. I think it was, I, I think, cause they certainly Rick, I think as a producer was clearly very involved in the kind of conceptual approval of these things. I mean, I guess I'm saying i roll it back a little bit further about sort of where they were, with all of these movies, again, in never going outside of any of the existing writers, which again, it's not necessarily, a, like I said, in the moment, I don't think it was a mistake or felt like a mistake because this is what I was sort of, I don't want to, to jump ahead, but the the thinking about where this was, where franchises were, where IP was, things that we take for granted now, even in the late 90s. I mean, again, this was pre pre the prequels, frankly, Pre, you know, X Men, pre Spider Man, The Matrix wasn't even out. I mean, you had sequels, obviously. Last Lost World had just come out the the year before. You had certainly, obviously, history of the Bond movies and things like that, and and Rocky. But you know, you, you, the most of the movies of that year, Armageddon, Private Ryan, Titanic, the most successful movies, Miss Doctor Doolittle, like they were all what we would call today kind of original movies. And what Star Trek was. And it, it's interesting because it was obviously it was such a huge franchise back then, even back then for a variety of reasons. But what it was to Paramount was reliable. And I think that that's not a bad thing either. again, when you when you put yourselves in the minds of everyone working and living, I mean we were all there in different in different capacities. I could tell you actually, the story of seeing insurrection on the Paramount lot was actually was something I, I really loved and enjoyed the experience. but Um, but they, the idea of, of what the IP was or what the franchise was, it was, it was to them something that needed to continue to work reliably. And yet not that they didn't want to have a breakout. Everybody wants to have a breakout and not that they wanted to be limited in terms of not having a good movie. They wanted to have a good movie, but the sort of pressure of saying, okay, we need to Break it open. We need to turn this into. Th- I mean, they were in the notes, it's interesting. They talked about this, even in its concept, as the whale movie, you know, some sort of spiritual uh, uh sibling to Star Trek Four, w- w- which it isn't. But right. it, the question of like, well, why was it like that? Like, why would they sort of looking at it and thinking, you know, well, you know, the last one did pretty well. I mean, generations did fine, and then first contact did well. And they thought, okay, well, we know it can kind of stay in that range, but they had never done that well internationally. And there wasn't as much, and this is, this is, I guess what I'm getting at is that today, when we think of these things that get repurposed, there's always like sky's the limit, like it's going to be for everybody. You're going to figure out how to, and typically it isn't, but like the, the, the idea is we're going to, we're going to make it as big as it can be so that it can kind of cross over I mean, that's what the superhero movies did, candidly. I mean, there were always Star Wars. There were always movies from our lives that were for everybody. But it wasn't until the last 15, 20 years that movies that were very specifically genre films in, in, and obviously Batman, Superman, also different. But I'm talking, you know, X-Men, Spider-Man and beyond were suddenly those movies and pirates, all those films that started to happen in the early 2000s, where they were, quote, genre movies that became for everybody. But at this moment, like the 90s, especially, the, you know, leading up to this movie, I don't think there was an expectation that it could be or that it needed to be something else. And to risk it being something else was potentially to risk what was uh, working. Okay. Well,
1: that's, but the, here's that's the word, risk. They're yes. taking no risk. Risk is our business. No risk. Risk running. is not our business. Yeah.
2: yeah. What well, okay, but I want to say this. He's saying risk is not our business. I think what's ironic, and you guys tell me what you think of this, that Paramount has done a better job following up the failures than the successes. The, the, the successes throw them off. If you look, let's you know, as much as we love Star Trek, the motion picture, it's a failure. How do they follow up? They go small. They bring in Nick Meyer, Hart Bennett, sure. Star Trek 2, right? OK, after Star Trek 4, how do they follow up the huge success of Star Trek 4 with final final frontier after the failure of final frontier they do undiscovered country which everybody but Darren Doctorman likes okay so it's the same thing that happened here. first contact huge success it's a breakthrough film. It, yeah. it went beyond the cult as they called it right and right. and then they don't know how to follow it up and we'll talk about that because look at the notes they want more humor they want more action they want all this stuff and no one's sure exactly how do you follow up first contact. No one is sure what the mixture is. Well, they, again,
6: it's sorry. Go ahead, there.
1: No, no, no. I, j- just that they, they frankly lucked out on First Contact by having a, a, a quality combination of aspects to that film that were appealing to more than just the, the usual gang of idiots. Right. Um, and uh, th- but no one knew why it worked. No, well, one, no, no one could put their finger on it.
5: That's not a mystery. The, the, the reason why it worked and why these other films don't is that, you know, First Contact, for whatever flaws it may have, was ultimately a really good story. It was a really good story about Picard. It was a really good story about that crew. Um, and the the movie was, for the most part, you know, structured around that, that one story, even though it had kind of the A and the B. Um, But, you know, Picard was, he moved through it. He had a journey, you know, things happened to him. It it got deep with his character. It got emotional, it had turns. And look, it's easy to say all that because that's, I I think, ultimately what we always respond to in a film. But if you look at something like Insurrection, that doesn't happen. There is no journey. It's all asserted. I could, to this day, as many times as I've seen it, okay, you guys know my whole thing about watching Star Trek movies, a number of times equal to uh, their sequel number. Uh, I still couldn't tell you what the hell that movie about. And that's that's the problem. It, it's not about anything. Well, it's, I want to you know it's, it's not about how much humor or action. It's, it's about story.
2: I, I want to go back for a second to something I said, because I didn't say it quite correctly. I said I that you know, Rick kept relying on TV writers. My problem isn't that they were TV writers. In fact, TV writers can be great feature writers. And in fact, people we know have been hired because they're successful TV writers because they could write fast and right, do great and end up doing great work in features. The, 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 the thing I'm saying is, they've always for Rick, it was always about hiring Star Trek writers, people who'd worked on the TV show. And it was true for a lot of the below the line people too. Um, Herman Zimmerman for production designer. Um, you know a lot of the, 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 you know the other people. Other than DPs, they generally looked inside the Star Trek family, which is interesting because even though Star Trek II was produced by the TV division, it was no one who had anything to do with Star Trek, which brought a fresh, fresh eyes to it. So I want to read you what Michael Pillar says in the book about uh, hiring a Star Trek TV writer and why, in his opinion, it's the right decision. He says. A writing assignment for a Star Trek movie would certainly attract all sorts of good writers with credentials and feature films. Why then wouldn't the studio and Rick Berman seek out new blood to write the new Star Trek movie instead of giving it to another old television warhorse like me? The answer can be found in Roddenberry's box. I happen to like the box. A lot of writers don't. In fact, I think it's fair to say most writers who've worked on Star Trek over the years would like to throw the box away. It may surprise you to learn that when I took over as head writer, the entire writing staff of Star Trek The Next Generation was so frustrated and angry with Gene Roddenberry, they were counting the days before their contracts expired, and indeed every one of them left at season's end. He wouldn't let them out of the box and they were suffocating. My first time in Ron Berry's box was during the very first episode I worked on as a writer. We were already in production of season three, four shows were finished, 22 still to go. There were no scripts and no stories to shoot the following week. Desperate, I bought a spec script that had been sent in from an amateur writer named Ron Moore who was about to enlist in the US Navy. It was a rough teleplay called The Bonding and would require a lot of reworking, but I liked the idea. So and then he goes on to explain how he changed that, uh, because in the future, people don't mourn death. And uh, so Roddenberry said no to the script and Pillar changed it. So the problem is that the kid is not mourning the death of his right. mother and, yeah. and put a spin on it. He says that was Roddenberry's box <laughs> working to their advantage.
1: Can you explain a little bit more about Roddenberry's box
2: uh, to people who don't know what that means? You want to, Ashley, you want to explain Roddenberry's box? Or you want me to? <laughs> um,
5: look, I mean, the, the simplest way of putting it is that I think, it, and it changed over time, but, uh, but Roddenberry uh, looked at his stories as a way of talking about um, people as we evolve, right? As we become better, uh, and in many ways, those aspirational qualities that he wanted to imbue his characters with and his society with, um, I think at times were uh, overinterpreted uh into, uh into a lack of conflict. Or I think that there were writers who believed that that meant um, that those things, those, those fundamentals of drama, right? People who were actually in, co- in conflict, not having a policy debate, but in real conflict, um, weren't allowed. Uh, and I think that, you know, yeah, of course, like I, I can't imagine any writer who wouldn't chafe under that interpretation. Um, and when you start talking about things like there, there isn't any mourning in the future, there's a part of me that goes, shit, I guess he missed Star Trek 2. But, um, you know, by the same token, I also kind of understand what that means, right? That it's, oh, okay. You're evolved enough that, um, that you're, that you're, that you're grief, that you're mourning, that you're. Your ability to let go is not impeded, right? That we've we've evolved enough that that we can process a death and we can move forward, right? Um, they, they, and that's that's what was missing.
6: I would argue that that is endemic to the show, and the idea meaning both its use in the show and its its uh, how they manage to get around it in the success lives of the show. The movies have always been a different animal. And yep. I think what I was trying to say before in terms of the time, you know, I was just thinking a lot about this, and if you'll indulge me for a second. It's like the, all, all that was going on, you know, when you're talking about whether they should have hired a TV writer or whether it would have been a mistake to hire somebody outside of Star Trek, it might have actually for a variety of reasons. But you can't uh, overestimate or underestimate, I never get it right, how much was going on in Star Trek. I mean, you guys know, but the world, like, three shows, two, one show, then two shows, then two shows, and like so much happening in the culture for Star Trek, but also in production, of which Rick was in charge of both of them right. and had to make these movies sort of in between all this other stuff, which is, I would say, I want to say part of the problem. I mean, part of the challenge that they could not overcome. I mean, if you just think about the movies, meaning to just compare them to the movies we love, I was doing this as an exercise before. So the show ends, There's 10, almost 10 years before the movie set before the motion picture comes out. The there's no Star Trek on the air. There's massive, obviously, fan passion for the show to bring it back. It's still in the culture, which is amazing. But there was a built-in advantage. First of all, the show was not on the air. Those characters were older. The context that they found themselves in were different. The it was easier to go and say, we're going to get. Robert Wise, like it wasn't. I mean, yes, Roddenberry was, as you guys have covered, you know, you know, and have covered so well on the show. Um, his relationship to that process was complicated, but those guys coming back, even in the motion picture, which is the which actually does both, which is a great episode and a great movie about those characters later in their lives, and they're split apart at the beginning of that story. Kirk is wrestling with being an admiral Spock is wrestling with his humanity and whether he should come back. Everybody, you know, there, can they get it back together again? And the movies that followed, even as they were trying to just, you know, as you said, Star Trek II was a response, giving it to Harv and the TV group and ultimately going from Jack swords to, to Nick and hiring all these people, just trying to put it together in a way that they when that made sense and that they could do it sort of naturally had an originality to it. And a focus on those characters so that, and I can't remember if I've said this one the last time I was on or not, so forgive me, but like, you know, those movies were about those characters. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't have ideas and not saying they didn't have concepts. Obviously Star Trek four was a concept, but, but it was all about their relationship, particularly, obviously two, three and four about their friendship and Spock dying coming back for Spock. And then, you know, even up through five and, and six, they didn't have to, to worry about being episodes because they sort of knew they had the bandwidth to, to, I mean, it's, it's interesting in a sense, when you think about Leonard directing, you know, much like you could argue, well, that was Frakes coming into direct, you know, first contact and and this one. But when you think about and read about how, and it's, I think the book is illustrative in this regard, but when you think about how generations came to be as they were trying to get all good things done. They were trying to move everybody straight into um, the movie production, um, including Ron, I mean, including David Carson, all these people that were, that were working on the shows. First of all, the audience didn't have time to miss these people. Like Mm -hmm. they were, they never left. And so it was always going to feel a little bit like, well, it's going into another thing and another sort of episode and it wasn't it was easy to say and I think First Contact did this fine I guess that like bigger you know more visual effects more stuff outside you know a space battle on the deflector dish and things like that but they never the reason that they felt more like episodes is they couldn't they were never far enough away from their stories in the series to do anything with those characters differently to kill anyone to to really break a, a bond between them. To not I'm saying that's what they should have done. It just the, machi-
1: mean, the machine that they ha- the machine that was running knew how to make episodes, and they never stopped the machine. They they put in some new ingredients, but it still they didn't know how to not make the TV show. Well,
2: well, and that's think- why. Go ahead. Mark. I I just want to say, Steve, you could make an argument that Insurrection is a pretty nifty. Uh, two-hour episode of Next Generation, it's mm-hmm. not a very good movie. And uh, I think that's partially why when I saw it, I didn't have the reaction I have now, because now I'm watching it as a movie, then it was much closer to the end of the series, and there were other series still on the air, and it felt to me like, okay, this is a pretty decent episode of the show. I mean, interestingly, they wanted to hire Jimmy Conway, who was a director of the TV show, to direct this. This was after the studio wanted to bring in a big teacher, uh, a big feature director. You know, they've gone out in the past to people like Ridley Scott. I can only imagine the agent calling back if they ever did laughing, like, yeah, seriously, like Ridley Scott's going to do your little Star Trek movie. But um, so, you know, even then uh, they, you know, they, they wanted Jimmy Conway and it was Patrick who said, I don't want one of the TV directors go and get me a big A-list director. And when that failed, they said, well, how do you feel about bringing Johnny Franks back? And he says, oh, that sounds marvelous. So, uh, you know, it's it, they go, you know, again, they have a diluted sense of the value of Star Trek because they go to conventions and everyone loves them. Right. But they don't get the fact that it's still a niche thing.
5: Well, there's there's another problem I think they've got. Right. And, and Steve, I think, hit on it, which is, you know, yes, uh, time kind of makes us miss these people and it kind of gives us opportunities to, to see changes in them. But if you look at the the structure of the motion picture, right, it's like there's a there's a very strong theme in that movie. And it's about um, it's really kind of how you can't go home again, but you have to go home. Um, Everybody like in that movie is is kind of on that is on that journey. And we find people in places that we've never seen them before. Star Trek 2 is kind of the same deal. Right. Uh, Kirk is unhappy as an admiral. Um, and he has his past and it comes back to haunt him. and he has to make choices and and you know confront not only his own um, not only confront the mortality of his friends, but but confront the the limits of his own confidence. like all of these things that that make it a film. But when you're talking about the next generation films, and I think in particular insurrection uh, and uh, and generations, you are essentially building those episodes. you see what I just said? Building yeah. those films from go, like episodes, everybody is in stasis, just like an episode of the show. The problem is really a problem of the week, where it's a problem with the guest star, as opposed to a problem for our characters. Uh, and the, the thing I think that sets First Contact apart is that at least it is about the card, right? At least it's about that. And it it gives it a through line. But it, it, they never did anything like you know, like, like, like what had to happen in the, in the movies, they never did. Well, Admiral Picard is coming back. Right. Or, you know, Captain Riker. I mean the the closest they came was bringing Worf aboard on first contact after blowing up the defiant. I mean, that was, that was as close as it got.
6: Well, that's, and I I would actually argue in first contact that, that it is, I, I didn't think that Picard's story was all that necessarily. I mean, yes, it was about him, but I think, it was really a movie concept, at least it was, they went Mm -hmm. back in time to try to save the future and they got to meaning it, it felt like it was kind of closer to that end of the spectrum. I don't, I mean, yes, it was interesting because he had to sort of, I guess, get over his anger and and vengeance or something, but he got
2: over in family.
6: (laughs) He did Oh talk about the great one, but I think, right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, 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 I remember and I hate doing this because, again, this is one of those like I, I preface all this as you guys know. I mean, when you do this for a living, it's always a miracle when any movie comes out yeah. well, you know, or much less makes sense. And so I, I, I try to, you know, you can always interrogate the decisions being made, you know, after the fact, you know, gently to an extent, because you know, there before the grace of God go any of us, you know, we all do try and you you think about it and you hope that you avoid the most cynical decisions when you're doing this stuff. But that's what I'm saying. It really put me in the mind to look at the period and the sort of what all the machinery that was going on with Star Trek, as Darren said, how Paramount and their notes are pretty good. You know, in the sense that they were giving notes on, as they kind of brought me back, it was the same that he prints the notes in their um, font that they used back then. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, I was, I I just, as an aside, I was um, working as an assistant at a company called Mutual Film, which had a deal at Paramount. Um, it was as producer Mark Gordon, and I was still an assistant at the time. I was working for an executive named Suzanne Patmore, who's amazing, no longer with us, but she was a great mentor of mine. Um, and I had eventually become an executive there. But at the time in '98, I was still an assistant. And our office was on the rally lot across the street from Paramount. And it was, I mean, first of all, one of the best commissaries at the time, like little hidden places ever. Um, but I knew, you know, Turkey Burger great. Just the whole, it was such a, everybody would come across the street from the lot to eat. Absolutely. It it was great. Um, And my my friend at the time was working, was an assistant to Michelle Manning um, and knew a big fan I was and got me into one of the screenings on the lot in the Paramount Theater. And maybe it was a press screening, I'm not sure, but it was just, you know, you guys have been there. It was such an amazing experience to go and see a Star Trek movie of the Paramount lot. And so I, while I didn't have the the full Phantom Menace, like, no, no, it was great. Like, I didn't have the full experience that I think you had, Mark. I was, I think I was still of that opinion She was like, oh, good, you know, good, good to see them again. Good to, you know, kind of visit with old friends. But it it really, um, it just didn't have a concept. I mean, that's the thing. It's just, it didn't, I remember thinking about insurrection and, and the idea of an insurrection. And I thought, oh, Hunt for an October, they should do, something cool where you know Picard goes rogue and they don't know why and they have to send somebody after they to send one of his Riker or somebody they have to send someone to go kill him and then you realize there's something else that he's uncovered and you know you make him Marco Ramey. I'm not saying that was necessarily the way to do it but you start to think of the other genres of movies just as right. when when Nick talks about Star Trek II and Hornblower and and you know gave it such a kind of grounded quality um, in addition to the, the sort of execution of the writing and the directing, um, that it's, as we say, a real movie. Like you, you you can watch that film and enjoy it for its dramatic values, which are really good, you know, as well as being great execution of those characters that we love for so long. And I think that, and it's not to, to, to throw any shade at, at Michael or, or the other writers who, again, were working with within what they had to work with, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they finished uh, the beginning of that, that book. He's like, it's like summer 97 or something, you know? So, you know, first contact came out in the fall in the November, I think, wasn't it 96 uh, or October, somewhere in the fall. Yeah. And so it's like, they went right into this. Like they had to have this movie out in 98. And so I was like, all right, what do we got? And it's like, all right, uh, we want to do a lighter movie. We want to, this book is really cool. Like in, in, in sort of think describing the thought process they were they were going through, but it was in everything he talked about was a, was a series episode idea. Okay. Fountain of youth. Well, that's not really a concept. It's a thing. And it's a thing right. that sort of is very potentially soft and, and somewhat passive and not specifically uh, doesn't, doesn't invoke any of the Star Trek values um, in its, in its idea. Right. And then, you know, and this also have, I, I, again, I say this with empathy because I could see them sitting in a room and going, well, you know, yes, it's only 600 people. They're having all of the first nation, um, you know, Native American um, parallels. And it's dramatic. I said, so this is, you know, what this is, this is a very understandable and relatable American historical tragedy. So the audience will get what that means. And that, yes, there is an intellectual thing about only 600 people. Well, how many, he says in the movie, how many people, you know, does it take before it's wrong? Like, but it's only 600, you're just like, wait a minute. Like it all starts to feel like you guys probably could have figured this out in a different way, to be honest, in the future. So it's one of those things that didn't quite make the leap from past, you know, example of historical, you know kind of incident to Star Trek idea. Because, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make
5: yeah. sense, and it doesn't imply any stakes. Right, right. Like there, there are no. There's nothing inherent to it that says, "Okay, I'm, I'm in." Right. If we fail, um, just like generations, like it, it asserted stakes, like this planet full of people that we never see are, are gonna die. And I guess there were kind of stakes, maybe because Deanna Troy can't drive. But you know, that's just they just aren't there. Right. Um, right. At least again. First contact had uh, the virtue of, of stakes.
4: The yeah, it had the
6: ship state. being it's taken so over. I mean, it had it had yeah. it had good stuff in it. I agree with that.
5: Yeah, exactly. But, it's like it just it just even by comparison, and you look at the movies, like the, the I keep saying this, but the, uh, the the first six movies, right? The motion picture has stakes. Wrath of Khan has stakes. I think the stakes in Star Trek Three are very incoate and very small, and I think that's one of the movies' problems. Um, okay. four. I totally disagree. (laughs) I know you do. And God bless you. Uh Um
6: Uh, can we debate the space? Just because I couldn't be on that episode. (laughs) No, just kidding. Keep going. Sorry.
5: (laughs) Go back and go back in time and uh and rescue the uh Star Trek 3 discussion. But uh yeah, I I just think you're right. It's like the the that that movie never gelled. It's so funny because I totally forgot, right? It's like for the it just forever. Like when we started talking about doing this episode, I had forgotten that the, the big idea in insurrection was the fucking, excuse my French, was the fountain of youth. So <laughs> I had we're, forgotten we're coming, that. And I was like, Oh yeah.
2: We're coming off first contact where, as you said, whether you love the movie or not, the, the stakes are are very high. If the Vulcans spoiler alert, don't see Cochrane's first flight warp flight, we will not make first contact. There'll be no federation. The future will be irrevocable irrevocably changed and the Borg will assimilate the entire alpha quadrant huge stakes right right you know um basically the the insurrection began with rick berman suggesting that he was very influenced by the prisoner of zenda and perhaps this is something that we should explore it's only when michael looks in the mirror and realizes that he's starting to look old and putting on all this product to try and you know with his hair falling out and the skin getting older that maybe we should do something about the fountain of youth and and a metaphor for people trying to keep their youth now that is a tv premise as you guys said more than that it's a tv even a tv press that they don't explore in any kind of meaningful way they right. have aliens that like to get plastic surgery from women in bad prosthetics and spandex but they don't explore the idea of what it means to confront aging. I mean Star Trek 2 did it very well. You know, even Star Trek 1, you know, when you when you lose the job you love for the job you think you should have and you realize right. you miss your old job. You know, right. Star Trek 2, it's like what happens, you know, when you start to realize you're you're getting older and you think developing uh, around the co- the cosmos is game for the young dog. Exactly. So what is Star Trek 4 trying to say? I mean, Michael says, I I know I don't know about you, but I'm wary of mean films. Bad guys don't just get shot anymore. They get shot and fall from buildings and crash through glass ceilings and get impaled on sharp objects before they die. I was worried there might be pressure from the studio to follow that trend in the next Star Trek movie. I've always felt Star Trek's greatest secret is its optimism. He's absolutely right about it. its optimism. But it's the same thing that happens in generations. When Jerry Taylor says, Let's cut all the the action. We got to save money on the budget. You should get rid of the scene where they're fighting the Romulans. Who needs that? Let's do a scene on the sailing ship where nobody, you know, where Worf gets a promotion. It's like, what? This is a movie. This is a motion picture writ large. And, 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 and they're giving TV notes. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you think that the
6: film suffered in a way because there was no real triumvirate in the way there was with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy that stood out, even as much as we love the rest of the family of the original crew, that it was just Picard, that, that Riker never quite elevated to that level. And so all these movies were always, these, these films were about, you can see even in these conversations, what's he gonna think, what's his story? He needs to be this guy, he needs to be the more action oriented version of the brain or whatever, Michael says it a few different ways. But again, I just go back to the fact that those movies and the original series to some extent, but definitely those original series movies were all built around them in some fashion, those three and then the collective of them, and that every one of those ideas was built from the inside out. Whereas these were all situations that the characters interacted with. And you could say, like in First Contact, that that. You know, right that that Picard got mad, you know, because he was he was haunted by his trauma with the Borg and it was happening again. And he was letting his, I guess, rage blind his judgment to some degree, even though they were hundreds of years in the past well, and basically had to destroy them all the home I but. will
2: say this. I think there's a reason the Kelvin universe rebooted the original series because it passes the mom test. Your mom, who knows nothing about Star Trek, knows who Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are. Do they know who Picard Data and Riker are? A, a wharf? No, I don't think they do. And that's why JJ, who also doesn't love Star Trek, did rebooted the original series. And watching Insurrection, it became very clear to me this was so inside baseball, kind of pun intended. There's talk about the Dominion, Wharf coming aboard from Deep Space Nine. I mean, they're doing all this stuff that's like deep, you know, uh super inside baseball kind of stuff about Star Trek that the general audience would be sitting there and saying, what the hell are they talking about? There's nothing to do with telling a story that's just trying to sort of bridge everything for Star Trek fans. So, you know, all their questions are answered about their favorite character. I mean, there's a whole scene with Troy and Riker being flirty, flirt themed. Like, oh, they're going to love this. Look, Troy, Troy and Riker are flirting together.
4: Come in. Hi.
1: You got a minute? Sure.
4: I need a little counselling. Well, it's the first time for everything. So do I lie down or what? Um, <clears throat> well, whatever makes you comfortable. But this isn't one of the usual therapeutic postures.
3: But it is comfortable. Mm-hmm.
4: Why don't you try sitting up?
1: Why don't you try lying down?
4: Well, you're in quite a mood today. Do you really need counselling or did you come down here to play?
0: I think I'm having a midlife crisis i believe you i'm not sleeping well
4: dr crusher has something that can take care of that
0: what i need i can't
3: get from dr crusher counselor do you think it's possible for
4: two people to go back in time fix a mistake they've made on this ship anything's possible yuck yuck <laughs> i never kissed you with a beard before
6: i kiss you and you say yuck so what are we gonna say there?
1: Oh, no, I, I wasn't going to say anything. I was just I was just reacting to the uh, to the the truth in it. I see the truth in it.
6: Well,
2: you, you speak your truth.
6: You, you got to speak your truth. I just again, I try to comment it from a place of at least the, the empathy of understanding that there really was no other path for those movies unless they just hadn't made them for 10 years and started in the early aughts. And then after. The shows ended, and say we're going to go back to the movies and catch up with with those characters. Yeah, you know, it's it's that old saying. How can I miss
5: you if you won't leave?
6: Right. Yeah, no. and so yeah, I just I
5: keep saying that to my kids.
2: <laughs> you moved to Texas. They, don't, they,
5: they, still, don't. they still found you. I know, right? They found me, little bad
2: Well, the the studio used to always say, "Who's Absolutely. our con?" And they also said Star Trek always works best when the Earth is in jeopardy. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think I they're either. right in suggesting that the stakes for a movie have to be very, very high. So I think the Earth in jeopardy is um, representative of the stakes being high, as opposed well, to 600 extras we have to move off of uh, but it's this more that, Lake that Sherwood no in the valley. more them as characters. I mean,
6: even if you had kept that in time, that's all I'm trying to say, is that the concept of whether it was... A billion people on the planet, or or was or the, some the stakes for them were not high, especially given this idea of insurrection, which itself is very is very provocative and, and interesting. Like again, I was like, as I don't know, uh, you guys do imagine a sort of all universe of a thing where you said, oh okay, you open a movie and it's like the the Riker's getting gotten promoted to captain. They gave me the Enterprise. We don't know where Picard is. This is big right. thing for him. He's got the crew, you know, most of them, everyone's there, but Picard's not there. And then somebody takes him aside and they're like, Well, we got some bad news. Like, you gotta go kill Picard. He's like, What? You know, like you have to go and find him and kill him. He went rogue and he With took extreme the extreme prejudice. Yeah. But and okay. I'm not but saying the- that's the good movie. I'm just saying, like, I'm already like, oh shit, like this is about them.
2: No, I agree because if you look at the original premise, it's Heart of Darkness meets the Magnificent Seven. And in the original premise, it's about a friend of Picard's from school, who's basically the Kurtz yes. character, who's now gone rogue. At least at one point, Rick Berman says, Well, you know, that should be data because, like, let's, you know, we're not going to get Tom Hanks to be the guest star. You know, right. even the, even the, as much as I love Anthony Zerbe and the day we're recording it, it's the 50th anniversary of the Omega Man. So God bless oh, him. Wow. But he, he is not like this dynamic, charismatic, Commodore uh, or whatever he was, Admiral uh, that can get, you know, should be the the star, the main villain. I mean, it's F Maria Abraham and Anthony Zerbe are our villains. It's like, I'm just, I'm getting frustrated even thinking about it, but you know, it's funny because in the past we've talked about, sometimes the stars are only looking out for themselves that there, there's an ego uh, involved. And that they don't, and certainly with Nemesis, we saw Patrick and uh, Brent didn't know what was best for the franchise. And uh, as a result, you get Nemesis. But I do feel that when it came to this movie, Patrick had some really cogent observations about the script. And we're lo- very lucky because we actually have Patrick with us to uh-huh. tell us about his uh, his notes. I, I'm going to read this. Uh, hopefully,
3: everyone will enjoy it. Uh, it starts out. Dear Rick, in generations, Picard and the Enterprise crew fought to defeat a madman who was prepared to sacrifice planets, cultures, civilizations, millions of lives to achieve a personal Nirvana. In first contact, our heroes fought to prevent the assimilation of the people of Earth, the solar system, our galaxy, and beyond. In the story I have been reading this weekend, We are enmeshed in a context of Federation politics, fine interpretations of the prime directive and ancient history as ancient as Star Trek of conflict between two members of the Federation. In the middle of all this, there is a vaguely defined characterless, uninteresting civilization who seem to have attended too many performances of Siegfried and Roy. I like the scene with Picard and the the Mariners and Picard functioning as a gorilla, but other than that, what I have read would have hardly composed a moderately interesting episode somewhere in the middle of season five of TNG. Other than this, what do I not like about it? It has no sweep. We must stop Soren, we must annihilate the Borg. It is enmeshed in detail. The backstory itself would put even ardent fans to sleep. It deprives us of data, the data everybody wants to see for most of the story and once again appears to make him the enemy of Picard. It has Picard for the third time in emotional agony. I must destroy my comrade. It uses the Enterprise crew in cliched and all too familiar ways, Worf defending his honor, Troy seducing a man for information. It again and again covers territory well explored, better explored during the series. So many of the issues and encounters have been dealt with, better dealt with already. I can list the episodes. It is so on the nose with Heart of Darkness theme and then drops it. It has no surprises. It has no scale. It has little humor. And what it has is cliched and tired. It has no romance. It is not sexy. It breaks no new ground. It underuses our cast. It has little fun. It is dull. I think what dismays me most about the story is the dredging up of the Romulans, a race already unexciting in TNG as the bad guys. It is revisionist and backward looking in a most disappointing way. After the Borg, the Romulans? Oh, my. I've taken detailed notes on the story, but really, I feel that there is so little for us here to even start work on. I'm very sorry my reactions are so negative, but they are so because my hopes to make this a superb film are so high. Let's talk,
2: Patrick. So, Steve, what happens oh, when you get work. that letter from your star? Um,
6: I'm both impressed. If you're going to get skewered, that's how you get skewered with class. Yeah, That's as incisive and correct. And, and thought, I mean, yes, it's the SIG for you as the, to receive that as the writer, I imagine it must feel pretty bad, but entertaining, inventive, like it's, he's very, and my favorite part is actually what he says, the middle of season five, <laughs> he's so specific <laughs> about where he <laughs> thinks it might be. It's like, well, at least he didn't give you season two. But it's it's you know you you start over. I mean, I, I think what's so interesting about reading the book in in getting to that place and and he's very to, to Michael's credit, he does he's such a such an open hearted person and and describes the feelings and and and, and doesn't hold back any of those, um, including any of those criticisms. And 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 I think you get so much out of the book. That's what I'm saying. The best thing about the book to me was sort of his. Experience and him trying to articulate as a writer, like what did all this mean? But I think I'm—I was shocked that that they made it, you know, that they kept going after that. Because I thought, how did they get him back on? Because when they talk about the the, in the next portion where they say, well, you know, Rick brings up the fountain of youth idea again, I don't understand why that made it any better for Patrick. Honestly, he's like, oh, it sounds, you know, oh, this is interesting. It's much better. And but it's the same story. And I I don't quite know how they did it, because there's an expression, you know, I don't know if it's a movie business expression or just a life expression when seven drunk Russians tell you you're drunk, you're drunk.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but you know what? It's like when Nick Meyer talks about how he had his first meeting with Shatner on Star Trek, Two, and Shatner eviscerates the script hates it right doesn't want to do it and 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 Meyer is like dumbfounded and shell-shocked and Hart Bennett says no 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 it's fine and Nick Meyer is like how is that fine <laughs> and he goes no he just wants to be the first one through the door and it's like it's just a couple of little things and we'll be fine and Nick Meyer's like really and Hart Bennett's like yeah really and sure enough that's exactly what it was he just wanted to be The one who figures things out, the one with the answers, the first one through the door. Got it. Patrick, it's kind of the same thing. Hmm. As soon as he hears Fountain of Youth, he's the center of like, oh, I'm getting back my virility. I'm the man of action. Now I can get into fist fights and I can do, because I'm not the old fogey who's like the patriarchal figure, you know, the father. And now I'm young and cool and I'm John McClane like in Starship Mine again. So I, I think that's why the Fountain of Youth, as ridiculous as it is, resonated with him. Because hmm. remember, the original premise of Star Trek V was also Fountain of Youth before it became God. God. It could, be God was,
5: it could only be better if the premise was uh, turning Captain Picard into a robot.
6: It's a good. It's a good point. I don't know. You're probably right that there's more similar than not between the Bill moment and that moment. It just always struck me as Patrick was a more not more sophisticated than Bill. Certainly not about the characters, but more. It was a different time too, and that the that the expectation of the material and and that you know he seemed in those in that note to see through a lot of what was going on with it yeah um but maybe you're right maybe it was they're the same both thing.
2: leading men and never underestimate the vanity of number one on the call sheet whether it's a man man or or a woman whoever number one on the call sheet you know i mean you can't say but
1: well that's even the when way they even when number one is number two
2: right
6: <laughs> no i so. i i have we all have experience with it for sure but it's interesting because i would say more often than not the and maybe it was different than because he was so still so integral to it all um because the the machine was still all going i mean you might argue that that well i guess with star trek 2 they'd already made motion picture i was gonna say that those that that they wanted to be back as much as anybody um you know whereas with patrick and the rest of those guys they kind of never left and you know he obviously found a, a great success franchise success with with X-Men after that Um, and for disclosure, as you guys know, I worked with him on Logan. He was brilliant, wonderful guy, incredibly astute about the character. Uh, Interestingly, um, you know, we, we were the idea that Jim had of making him a a lot older and, and, and um, affected by dementia. What we were, we were worried. We're like, he's going to read and be like, you know, no, And he was embraced it immediately and, you know, had some changes to the character, but just it was a great script. But it was interesting. I never thought about it. But yes, another age question. But, you know, 20 years later,
2: it's interesting because here, Pillar says uh, later, Rick called to tell us how the conversation had gone. So I said to him, you know, Patrick, we even worked out a story in which everyone on the ship gets younger. I barely got it out. Rick continued when Patrick jumped in with, yes, Fountain of Youth. Everyone is fascinated by the youth culture. What a splendid idea. And then I said to him, to be honest, Patrick, we put that story aside because I was worried about you. I thought you'd have a problem getting younger during the movie because it might make Picard seem old. And he says, that's very kind of you to consider my feelings, darling, but I really have no problem with that at all. Sounds like great fun.
3: Did your people's mental discipline develop here?
4: More questions always the explorer if you stay long enough that'll change will it you stop reviewing what happened yesterday stop planning for tomorrow let me ask you a question have you ever experienced a perfect moment in time a perfect moment when time seemed to stop then you could almost live in that moment.
3: Seeing my home planet from space for the first time.
4: Yes, exactly. Nothing more complicated than perception. You explore the universe. We've discovered that a single moment in time can be a universe in itself. Full of powerful forces. Most people aren't aware enough of the now to even notice.
3: I wish I could spare a few centuries to learn.
4: It took us centuries to learn that it doesn't have to take centuries.
6: <laughs> okay. Well, they really, <laughs> whatever the reason, they really turned them around. Like, if you, yeah. to answer your question, if you had gotten that letter from someone who you couldn't do the movie without, You'd, be, you'd think you're not making that, that film. That was a pretty thorough exhortation, if that's the right word, of, 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 of the proceedings. Mm-hmm. But
2: Well, I think also you said, why didn't they just stop? The fact of the matter is the train had left the station. And again, it's the, the old Star Trek release date. It's like Paramount needed product. And they figured, you know, it's like the TV show. By the time they rolled cameras, They'd have something to shoot. and that's, uh,
6: that's what I'm trying to say. That was everything. And it's not to say that, that the studio didn't want it to be good. I mean, everybody wanted it to be good, obviously, or, or better than the last one. They just, it needed to be reliable for its audience and have a movie to release at that period that that was satisfying to, to the track audience. And so it's a, it was a different, I hate to say it was a different time because that's such a cliche, but it really was. And there wasn't, I would say, even having been there, as you guys were too, much in the way of examples of where people went back to sort of franchises like that um, and complete, other than Bond, obviously, which always refreshed with an actor, you know, over the years, as you know better than anybody. But um, there were sequels, right? But there weren't, you know, complete reboots, there just weren't. And so Star Trek was still going, it was actually still current. And yeah, so there yeah. wasn't an example or, or any need to say, well, it should be for, you know, yes, they wanted to do better, but they weren't like, okay, this is going to be, you know, Armageddon, whatever the, whatever the, it was yeah. Titanic, Armageddon, Private Ryan, um, something Bye. about Mary, Austin Powers. Like I am showing you the big movies in 98. Um,
2: but you know what they all had in common they didn't die the death of a thousand cuts like Star Trek inevitably did. I mean this was another one where, you know, Marty Hornstein the line producer is given a budget and then they start to to cut it, you know, and this happened this happens with every Star Trek movie until Star Trek 2009. And uh, I mean if you look but the, the funny thing is a lot of the stuff that got changed wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been better. Like you have the fl- flying motorcycles instead of those bad CG drones. Flying motorcycles. I mean, that Picard, I mean, that's like the off road racing in Nemesis. Like Michael thinks this is a movie. How do we make it not the TV show? We put Picard on a flying motorcycle chase. It's like,
6: they, it, you it, know, 1980. Uh, and <laughs> yet they kept the joystick that comes up sure. from the, I, I mean, I'd forgotten they, about that until I saw it this time. I was like,
2: wow. I know. Well, and then even the, that awful Gilbert and Sullivan blue skies. Uh, uh, which is supposed to be, I guess, one of their signature action pieces, you know, one of their trailer moments. I mean, that was originally going to be, uh, uh, you know, Picard um, sort of uh, reciting King Lear with um, <laughs> with, uh, with Data. And, you know, Patrick didn't want to do King Lear. He thought it was too stodgy, and they'd done it before on the show. And uh, so it becomes this, like, ridiculous You know Gilbert and Sullivan. The not at all stodgy
1: Gilbert and Sullivan.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if it's as bad as when you think the twenty third century. Yeah, you think of Gilbert and
3: Sullivan. Mister Wolf, do you know Gilbert and Sullivan? No, sir. I have not had a chance to meet all the new crew members since I have been back. The composers, Wolf, from the nineteenth century. Data was rehearsing a production of HMS Pinafore just before he left. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fist should be ready to resist. A dictatorial word. Sing Wolf, sing. His nose should pant, and his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame, and his brow should furl. His bosom should heave, and his heart should glow. And his fist be ever ready for a knockdown blow. His nose should pant, and his lips should curl. His cheeks should flame, and his brow should furl. His bosom should heave, and his heart should glow. And his fist be ever ready for a knockdown blow. His eye should flash with an inborn fire, his brow with scorn be wrong. He never should bow down to a domineering frown or the the tang tang of a tired tongue. tongue. His heart should stump and his throat should growl. His hair should curl and his face should scowl. His eyes should flash and his breast protrude. And this should should be his customary act.
1: We need something to bring the kids in. Yeah,
2: the youth culture. (laughs) What I love is you got at least this great Jerry Goldsmith soundtrack with Brent Spire singing Blue Skies on it just for completists. Wouldn't want to miss that. Well, now, were there parts that
6: um, were good or that, that, that had more potential than was executed of the movie?
2: That's a good question. Ashley, what do you think?
5: Uh, Well, first of all, I think that there were a number of scenes that uh, would have been improved greatly if they had actually done something with the blue screen in the background. I mean, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, look, it's to me. I don't know. I, I think I think that there is a problem with that movie that is like original sin. Right. It was like it was born into it. And there might have been sequences that that could have been better. Right? Like, I think that maybe, you know, that, that last uh, bit of action could have been, it could have worked. Right. But the thing is, like, it, it, it only have worked better in terms of the mechanics, because what was behind it uh, was all missing. Right. There was no character in it. There was no stakes in it. Um, as I said, it's like, I saw that movie, I don't know how many times. And until like, you know, we started talking about this episode, I completely forgot the goddamn premise. Um you know, it's, there were so many things that, that are in the fundamentals that are missing that no amount of dollars, it doesn't matter if it's drones or if it's motorcycles um, or whatever it is, if it's not about anything, it's still not about anything, right?
6: I, yeah, I don't disagree. I was trying to think of, I mean, I liked the idea that, that obviously the Picard has to remove the pips and take off the uniform. And that I like that he raids the armory that he actually has to sort of become, you know, the idea of a, of a, you know, in the military Ash, you know, where there's the idea of the, the air force, you know, the folks that are up there and then the folks on the ground who get shit on the grunts who do the hard work, but everybody in the air force and, and, you know, pilots, like they have it good. And the idea that this, airman in a way, this captain in the, of the, you know, has to get down again. It didn't happen in the movie, but the idea that he would have actually had to become or join perhaps an existing guerrilla movement where he had to really see what was going on, you know, when they come to planets, when they come, if there was real interrogation of the sort of Federation policies even, or just, you know, what happens, you guys come here and think we all want to be there and we don't you know, or something where he has to be, the idea of him fighting right on the ground against a larger, more technologically advanced force with a group of underdogs could
5: be appealing. Sure. It's cowboy diplomacy as Spock called it in uh, Unification, right? And it's just something that Picard doesn't do a lot. It would have been, there's a version of that that is very interesting. Um, It's just that it, it, I think the, the film really hedged its bets on that I mean, quite a lot. I'm being, I guess, generous, but <laughs> can I ask you a question? Why did they,
6: I was just, because when you mentioned the blue screen thing, Ash, I thought that that was a mistake. I, with the end climax, where they're in the collector and he's climbing the ladders and is and after him. It looks like they just forgot to um, comp something in. They,
2: the, they, didn't, they forget. didn't forget. They ran out of money. They ran out of money oh. and time.
6: Because yeah, so those were so it was an
2: actual blue screen.
6: Like they just were like, well, we'll just make it look like a blue. OK, I was just they wow, had never, they did
2: they did test screening them. and they had to reshoot the ending um, just like on Generations because it tested so badly and uh, they reshot it. And I, I think it was a combination of the studio not wanting to spend the money. And I, also, I think that, uh, you know, it's not like the, the digital era now. Where, you you know, you literally uh, prints could be beamed, uh, you know, the the morning that they're uh, being exhibited. You know, they had to to make prints. They had to distribute, you know, there was a lot. It was done optical. It would have been expensive. So I think there are a lot of reasons they didn't do it. And I think they really just didn't want to throw good uh, money, you know, after bad. I mean, I, I have to say what's amazing about that movie is one of the things they got so excited about and they were touting was you're going to finally see the captain's yacht like anyone cares right. you know we've been talking about this it's in the blueprints it's like oh man captain jack you know i think if there's anything like Jordy getting his eyesight back at least that resonates it's yes. sentimental that, by the way i think that was a really good idea you know that
6: I, that notion which was which was touched upon about what are you going to tell him one of the one of the antagonists says to picard what are you going to tell the guy you're going to lose that you're going to tell you know it's got and, and it's a, at least started to touch on a character conflict of some some sort and almost sets you up for something where if in a different story Jordy would have done that, you know, would have yeah. sacrificed, made some sacrifice you know, for that reason, knowing that he was not going to have his eyesight, because again, it's small but it's it's character also, there's a tiny thing, like I may be never, I'm always a little confused about how transporters work, but there's a whole thing at the end where the ship has to kind of race along the Outside of the exploding collector, in order to get close enough to apparently there was a two second delay, which was stretched into like 15 seconds somehow. And the fire is kind of coming up and coming up, and the ship is getting closer. And it's he's beamed out just as the ship passes overhead. That's not how transporters work. Am I wrong? Is that right?
4: Uh-huh.
6: You no. Know? now you're getting nerdy all right no I'm sorry I, I, just, I will say was I, I, I was think... watching it and I thought you know they're usually you know I, I'm usually very good at having these these issues with movies that I've worked on because it's always a matter of oh I missed that or we didn't get that right oh no,
2: you' n- you're not wrong you're very not wrong.
6: critical of it so but again I, I I go back to this idea that it's 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 obviously easy to criticize the movie for its its flaws it's just i really am fascinated by the by the era and by you know what could have been done differently and 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 i don't think it there was a path i just don't i don't think there was a not so much of a will maybe maybe you're right that it was sort of budget um appetites from paramount but the machine was so huge they were making so much television and it was making i'm sure in syndication so much money in a way that the film certainly not the original film certainly not until next generation just lived on their own yeah you know decades hence from the show and and got to be their own thing which these movies absolutely never got
2: well rick as a producer was very clever he had his own fiefdom and he had the studio convinced that nobody understood Star Trek except him, which I don't begrudge him. I mean, I yeah, think it's the reason he's a credit, very, very rich man right now. And he's done great work, you know, a lot, you know, we're, we're focusing on insurrection, but, you know, he bamboozled them the thinking as you should, that, you know, only he can fix it, right. Only he knows. And as a result, they, they believed it. Even somebody like Don Granger, who now is over at Skydance, who was the Paramount executive for a long time, you know, who knew Star Trek very well, like, he bought into the whole idea that we need somebody who knows Star Trek because it's so complicated and you can't bring in somebody from the outside because they don't get it and they won't understand it. And you need somebody who has this working knowledge of, of it because it's oh, really interesting. The irony the movie of opens with a Rick Harv Berman in. production of a Jonathan yeah. Frakes
6: film. It's amazing. But if you think about the irony of them bringing Harv in as the TV producer, and that's what, you know, worked for two, three, four, and beyond is, and yet Rick was the television producer. I mean, it shows you also just how. But Harv
2: it, wasn't the Star Trek producer. No, that's Harv, what I'm saying. But at yeah, least yeah. he
6: was, a te- I just mean, it was such a, it was the opposite of what you're saying, which is, except yeah. for the TV component, I guess I'm, I'm just muddling my own point, which is they made such a big change of, of, of leadership and certainly sidelined Gene even, even more so into Um, And obviously hedged their bets by Harv coming from the TV side. And so it's that it just, it just, again, not that we need the reminder of how incredible a bit of serendipity Wrath of Khan really was, uh, you know, in a, in a moment, you know, where the franchise was, was only, like I said, only the films and only, you know, at that point, obviously the reruns, but also the motion picture and, the the industry that was Trek in the late 90s was vastly bigger, um, and more profitable. I have to imagine with with all of the television shows, and so the films were. I think they always still felt like the films were the marquee, literally, but also the sort of marquee product in a way, um, which may not be the way it is these days. But, um, but somehow it didn't. It, it they didn't have a process that was separate or that was um, inviting of, of taking that risk of a different set of talent. Um,
1: They they didn't have an incubation system for the films that was different than how they made the series.
6: Yeah. Or maybe another way they they had too much to lose meaning in other eras, they didn't have as much to lose, meaning they only had the films or, Whereas here, it had to, I mean, they didn't have the same, the way we think of it today with the franchise building and world sharing and, you know, all kinds of the intricacies of how the stuff works across so many mediums, but they were just making stuff. They were just making a ton of television that spawned an incredible merchandising business that was obviously then became a big DVD business at the time, which was how everybody was making money. And so it was They, if you look at it from that perspective, it was just, like I said, that goes back to what I meant by reliable. I didn't mean it as a sort of insult to the, to Don or those guys. Right. It was just like, it was a big, big thing, big enterprise. You know, yeah. of
2: I feel bad for Jonathan Frakes because obviously I've talked to John a little bit about this. He's very, very proud of uh, first contact as he should be. Um, he doesn't talk about insurrection much other than say this and Thunderbirds, you know, pretty much put him in movie jail for a long time. You know, he's gone on to a very successful TV directing career. You know, he's one of the nicest people, super talented. Yeah, I've heard that. I met him once uh, a long, long
6: time ago. I've heard he's a wonderful
2: he, guy. He, he's a wonderful guy. And he, um, you know, he didn't really get the opportunity to put his mark on this movie. You know, it's kind of like he's handed a script and then, you know, the again, it's it's almost because it's produced like TV, you know, Rick Berman's the showrunner. You know, and 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 Pillar's the one who's writing that episode, and John's you know almost like a TV director. So uh, you can't hold him accountable for the you know the things that went wrong there. And I, no, I think that he did what he could. I, I, I certainly,
6: yes, I would agree with that. Again, in the sense that he was as much a part of the same institution and the process of plugging everybody into it, and had a limited scope of what he could accomplish. On the other hand, this movie, I think the concept of this movie and the world, the alien world, the village, the Baku, all of it required a level of, I don't say design and cinematography and lighting. I mean, there were just things that were not helped by, I think, some some flatness to it. And it's, and it's not to say, again, I think he's certainly very, I, I think you're right about First Contact. And Actually, I think there's more atmosphere in First Contact, if you think about it, just Absolutely. all the interiors and the Borg stuff, and even how much really good night work there is on Earth, mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. like, it's strange, like, it's,
2: it, they look like different movies, even. Yeah. Um, and Generations at least had John Alonzo shooting it. Yeah. So uh, as bizarre as it's shot, it's interesting to look at it visually. Right. Whereas, yeah, I actually think is not he, visually interesting. It's, I, I think that's right.
6: And I think he lit, I know this is a, this gets geeky too, but I think going from how we saw the bridge, how we saw the Enterprise D on the show into that, it looked different. It looked interesting. Yes. It looked, it, it was looked actually, like a movie. It looked like a movie. Like it was really lit. Yeah. And I thought in watching this film again, both the sort of, you know, the design limitations of both the Baku and, the the villains um but also just the sort of limitation of the village and and what they were they were just they just look like people it was just
1: the planet of central casting
2: yes oh my god and donna murphy who i've loved on broadway is terrible in the movie and the whole plot with the um the duck blind is straight out of who watches the watchers right which when you're comparing it to a tv episode which did it way better yeah, way, but and that's the thing. You're like I'm. I feel like I'm watching a repeat on the big screen. Yeah. like you're watching a TV repeat. And and even something the the Briar Patch. It's so soft to call it the Briar Patch. There's nothing scary about that. Suspenseful about that. Yeah. Even Enterprise called it what they called it the Expanse or something. Uh, I mean at least way that from even from sounds the better.
6: Nebula. To
2: the Briar yeah. Patch. Right. Like, to the Briar Patch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. No, it's
6: true. I mean, you went to and that was, yeah. I mean, think about the technical limitations of that film, you know, how many years earlier, 15, 17 years earlier. But that's what I mean. I get all of those things, it, it's not to, to knock Frakes in the sense that the part, you know, he he also has, I think, an interesting year for comedy like Nimoy did. But but it again, a little bit of style and and um cinema might have helped it a bit and that's money i mean again i think what you said that was marty hornstein and the fact that they had a pretty tough line on the budget and the script was big you know and they were on location a lot a lot bigger bigger than than first contact in other than the things that they had to build in first contact but you know
5: but but they they, were shooting at night it has to be on the page first Right, there has to be something to make decisions about, and this is like something that I have a thought I've never had before on all of this until tonight. But you know, maybe maybe part of the problem is this: it was both television and not television at the same time, right? You have a, a director who is essentially operating as a television director. You have um, you know uh, Rick, who is the producer. It's a very producer-run film, as though he were the showrunner, but with one writer. Michael Pillar, right now uh, on any other show, Michael Pillar would have been the, the filmmaker. He would have been the, the decision maker. He would have been the guy with the taste who made the choices. Um, he would have had a Ron. He would have had a Brannon. He would have had a Renee or an Ira. Right. He would have had these voices who were in there contributing, you know, the things that they were great at, the things they were best at. Um, and it's a it's a process in television that, that can be very collective. Look, it can be, you know, very um, singular in some ways. You know, it's like, you know, if you're looking at something like Mad Men or and I, you know, just various and sundry shows, but but in the Michael Pillar school, okay, and it's like in, in a lot of ways, I consider myself sort of a, a spiritual grandchild of the, the Michael Pillar school. Um, it's it's very much about the guy who's is in the middle making choices based on what he's getting from talented people around him. Um, and I, I think, and I, I feel this in the book, I, I feel Michael as an island and it's a lonely place and he doesn't have the the power like that on a Next Generation or a DS9 or a Voyager he would have had. And I think if it had truly been run like the television shows or they had committed to working it like a feature, it would have been much better. But it was uh, just looking at the process, it feels like this awful dispiriting um, hybrid that can never really find its feet because you don't have the right people making decisions. Now, maybe I'm maybe I'm screwed up and wrong about that. No, again, I think it's, is...
6: you're, you're not wrong at all. I think that the, the other thing, and this is the scariest, and I, I've certainly been in this situation where you just... <laughs> You, you, in the moment, you think it's the right idea. You think this is it appeals to you in the way that he's very articulate about in the book, both him and Rick, but both of them about the the um, fountain of youth, about the idea of the clutter arc or whatever it is that he was talking about, um, trying to kind of give it life. And I think that's what I mean is that all of those things might have helped it to some degree all the things we're talking about, but cause I also was just going to say, I think you're right. It actually has to be on the page, but you know, in that cliche of film being the director's medium and you look at the Robert Wise and Nick Meyer compared to even, you know, Leonard, th- there's a difference. I mean, Leonard, I think had other great gifts, clearly, especially for Star Trek four, which is again, the movie that should never work and yet does. Um, but this from David Carson to Frakes, like it, 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 and then, I guess to prepared, but it, it, it never had a chance to be anything else um, from a director who would push back and say, no, you can't do that. No, I can't do that. script. You guys are wrong. You're not going to,
2: it wasn't that. the usual give and take that you get on any movie. And right. Michael, unfortunately was a victim of his own neuroses. Um, and he didn't get the support, as you mentioned, the support. I mean, there is a talk where he goes to Ira bear with what yeah. he thinks is a great script. And Ira bear says, I got bad news for you, Mike. This is terrible. Uh, because oh, Ira Bear always called it like it was. Um, I just so... had a
5: PTSD flashback. Thank you for
2: that. But I'm just saying. All I was trying to say <laughs> is,
6: I think it's all of those things are compounded by the fact that I guess at the end of the day, it was just the wrong. I, it was an idea that never could live. And I say that with utter, total empathy, having made that mistake too. And you go through and you think it's going to be this, and you're going to you 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 go through a process of development where you know, it's improving. It's like when you finish the movie and you're going through the testing process and your first test is horrible. And then your next test is like a little bit better. And you're like, well, it's better. Oh, they moved up. And, and yet you release the movie and you realize, Oh, it was never good. It just got better from where it was. Right. And that's the harsh reality of the bacon, the souffle, you know, it just sometimes rises and sometimes doesn't. And I think, and I, again, I really do say it with all I don't didn't know him, but 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 love for his work and empathy for how hard it is. It just wasn't an idea that could hunt at the end yeah. of the day.
2: What we got um, here is a souffle that didn't rise. I think we all agree about that. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I have to say it's a wonderful book. I know that his his widow, Sandra, self-published it uh, a year or two ago. So if you seek it out, it's uh, your interest in the subject, you can seek out this book. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It was, you know, pocket canceled it. it. It wasn't printed. It was very hard to find for a long time. Bootlegs circulated uh, for many years. Um, and uh, I'm so glad as part of Michael's legacy, because I think the book really captures his voice. Um, the, title, and,
1: the title of it is fade in from idea to final draft, the writing of Star Trek insurrection by Michael and Piller.
2: And Michael died way too young of throat cancer. It's, it's, it's very sad, but he leaves an incredible legacy. And uh, it's very sad because, in fact, if you read the very beginning of the book, he dedicates it to Rick Berman and talks uh, about one day they'll look back as altar cockers looking back at their lives and you know laughing about this experience. And, of course, Michael never got to to live to be an old altar cocker, which is Yiddish for uh, somebody old oh. and and, uh, and, and I so would say their
6: their relationship, though, just I, I was wonderful. I mean, just you can really feel the partnership that that they had and his description of Rick as a rock, as a producer. And, you know, was was not just kind. It was inspiring
2: in a way. Rick believed in him. And Rick also made him a very, very rich man. And I say that, you know, with great, a great deal of respect, because, you know, Michael started as, as a TV censor. You know, he worked on Simon to Simon. He was going from show to show. He was number two and number three, you know, and, and Rick Berman handed him a, uh, a show to run. He did a great job. He nurtured talent. He, 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 he started and ran many other shows and became very rich in the, this was the great time to be in TV in the nineties. I mean, it was like the film business, you know, there's a lot of money to be made back then. And, uh, you know, Rick and, and Michael made a lot of money and, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, look, I, I kind of wanted to wrap up by asking what could they have done to make this movie work? And, and uh, it, you know, you sort of answered that when you talked about your Hunt for Red October Marco Ramius idea, which I just <laughs> love. Um, uh, is Ashley, what could they have done to make this work?
5: Uh, look, man, I mean, I, I think I remember reading, um, you know, the first rumors of what this was supposed to be about. And some of this version of it was covered in the book. And it was almost, you know, really an offhand comment about what if it's data. But I do think that there is a good version of this movie that, that, that wasn't, you know, on the nose with the heart of darkness of it all, where it really is like, has, has data flipped out, right? Is, is, has data gone rogue in like his own way? Has he malfunctioned? You know mm-hmm. that it's uh, that you turn it into a story about um, uh, about dealing with like the changes in your friends, you know, the, the changes in your life, your fears about those things. Um, that you make it a film about hunting for data and discovering that data hasn't malfunctioned at all. Uh, that mm-hmm. data is in fact um, following, you know, the the prime directive. That he is in mm-hmm. fact doing everything that you expected him to do, um, but there is still a threat and it's a threat with stakes, right? That it's something that at the very least feels like it has some emotion behind it, that it feels like it has some journey um, in front of it. And I think if if they had managed to bring that together, I think I would have dug that film. Um, I I wouldn't have minded, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have minded a a quote unquote, a darker tone if it would have saved us from Worf's pimples, Right, yeah. it's like yeah. the humor. In I, that I movie just imagine the you doing
6: work. your your version of data doing Al Pacino and Injustice for All, just like going crazy at the end.
2: This whole place out of order. <laughs> well, and, and 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 data, uh, you know, um, all that stuff at the beginning where. They're making first contact, and they're having. Uh, uh, he's being a Picard is being a diplomat and trying to uh, uh, adhere to diplomatic protocol. I mean, we've seen that again in the show a million times, and it's so soft, and it takes Season a while five, for us I to think. even <laughs> to even get to the story they're trying to tell, and the and the teaser, which is supposed to be engaging, right. isn't. Darren, what about you? What, what 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 do you think they could have done to make Insurrection work? I think the the the
1: problem. My problem with it was that if you immediately look at the problems in the in the film, they, the audience can tell how to solve this problem immediately. Mm-hmm. you know move the people for God's sake. you know? <laughs> yeah. it, 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 you need to have a bigger problem that can't be solved by
2: immediately looking at the situation. Yeah. Wasn't there even an episode up the long ladder yes. where they moved, where, yeah. where they moved them, and like yeah. put them in the hollow it was deck Not an Canadian... episode, but
5: yes. Yeah,
6: That's I the Servino yes. switch, isn't that what they was talking about in the book?
5: Yeah. You know, oh the only thing God. I want to add to that is I think, and, and this is just my my final thought on the that Heart of Darkness pitch. One virtue of something like that, at least, would have been, I believe, that data would have been a worthy adversary for Picard. Absolutely. Right? If, I mean, I think that would have made it interesting. But you're right, Darren. It's like there was no problem in that movie that was not obvious in terms of... And it, and, it just...
1: But again, it, if you show the stakes, if you show these people being eliminated, killed off, you know, some kind of danger that is going on that is not just sort of nebulous, oh, well, what are they going to do? I don't know. It You need to have... Something visceral to hook onto, and there's just nothing there.
6: And and it also, I mean, to the, you can go down that rabbit hole. The the, the amount of coincidence of, of just the, patch. the only place in the galaxy where this yeah. is, and it's and it's these guys need it, but then we can't simply, we can't replicate. Again, it's always hard in the in the, in the 20th or twenty fourth century, where you know it's a problem that is probably doable today. Yeah. In a way that that belies all the technology that they had, but I, I like Ashley what you're saying. Just if you imagine the data of it all different from what I was pitching with the product October, where you know data is the one that they have to hunt, and if you had a different scenario that wasn't about the these the re- forced relocation of these people, and you had a thematic idea that you know data the one being theoretically without a conscience, without a a soul in, in this is the only one who understands what the Federation is really about. And that the story is about them coming to understand how far off course they've gone. And that Mm -hmm. only works if you, if you've not only, but I think it works best when even Picard has to examine his own behavior. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's a much more fertile
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, I have to say, we didn't mention this. And there's another reason I love Michael. He writes a whole page about how Brent Spiner and him, Brent yeah. did not want him writing the movie. Brent thought he didn't understand data. He was the wrong guy to write the movie and, and that he didn't know how to write the character. <laughs> and, and the fact that Michael has the, the, the he balls to put this in out? the book. It's, it's God bless him. He so. really does.
6: He, I thought that was, that was really such a huge, there's so much humanity. I know it's again, a cliche, but mm-hmm. in, in that part of it and him, disc, him documenting that journey, war, I was going to say warts, warts, warts and all.
2: Warts and all. <laughs> of all the souls I have encountered, yeah. his was the most human. Plain yeah. On. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to thank, uh, uh, I want to thank Steve and Ashley for joining us. For another episode this is fascinating to steal a phrase uh of a glorious track experts i'm so glad we were able to do this we've talked about doing this for a while uh hopefully we can maybe dissect some of the other star trek movies and lose a few thousand more listeners <laughs> i love that movie i don't know why you're banging on insurrection and we'd love to you know, leave like nemesis
1: if, alone
2: if, if you're a fan we'd love to hear uh we'd love to hear your contrarian views uh and if again, you like me you think this that uh,
6: space doc actually has a purpose, unlike these guys. Find <laughs> me online. I like am with I you.
1: I'm on i on
5: your Was I'm yelling your at phone phone. my phone as I was I'm listening. I'm sure space <laughs> doc this would
1: be great. Episode. I'm sure space doc would be great on
2: pizza. <laughs> but that's you know what? It. I don't know how that's, I got lumped yeah. into the I don't like space doc thing. Yeah, because I was very clear that I thought it was the blue bio of outer space, and that I dig space doc. I would go uh, eat I'm on there. Team Space dog Yeah. Uh, me oh. too. I In don't fact, care about. Scale. You're going to put your
6: experimental. You, it's I like you. when the Russians, they don't put the boomers uh, out and they put them on, under yeah. uh, cover. You know how I the Excelsior's sitting out there where everyone can see it and and nice. see what's going on?
2: I don't like the Excelsior, though. I don't like that design oh, at all. Come on. all that right is now it's, ugly but
6: Now you're I, getting nasty.
2: How about because the designs in Insurrection? How awful were those ships in Insurrection? It's terrible, terrible.
6: I, I didn't. They were. They so, felt like ships generic. from the show. I mean,
2: they. Yeah, the, they did. The, they, they had were no that, You know. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Anyway, right. so anyway, we're starting it's off so again. To we can't do that. I I know yeah. it, it. really is parting is such sweet sorrow. But I want to. I want to tell you. Uh, we want to thank you for uh, uh, listening to Inglorious Trexperts. As always, we want a special thanks to the great Bill Ritter who uh, makes us sound so great, even when Ashley is like coming over a cardboard, uh, a cardboard <laughs> cup and a, and a little rope line from, uh, from halfway across the country. And of course, our uh, associate producers, Zach Raggett and uh, Peter Holmstrom, as well as our producer, Natalie Miscalli. You can, of course, listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts and please rate us five stars, even if you love Insurrection because uh, we want you to tell other people that the podcast is uh, worth listening to and listen to our sister podcast, the Trek Sports Briefing Room, where we curate uh, significant episodes in the Star Trek oeuvre. Steve, we'll have to have you down to the briefing room to uh, talk about one of your favorite episodes one of these days.
6: I, I would love that. That's such a That's- kind invitation. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Well, we will we will take you up on that. And then um, uh, listen to the Leverage uh leverage after show leverage redemption after show that's a a video exclusive so you can only watch that on the electric now app so download that at your favorite app store and you can watch all your favorite electric surge podcasts on electric now and uh, we hope you'll join us so until next week on behalf of steve ashley darren and myself mark a altman keep on trekking ingloriously of course oh did you want to do that steve Oh. No, I did it last time. Cool. <laughs> you did last time. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, can you want to hit us with the engage? Give us engage. Come on. Engage.